Well, if you're joining us here for the first time or if you haven't been here in a while, we're currently looking at First Chronicles, and uh, I spent the past two weeks looking at First Chronicles chapter 21, looking at this chapter, and we've been asking this question, uh, why this chapter is here at this point about David's life, why the chronicler, the, the, the historian, makes a selective history, and he's always describing David as the perfect king, the perfect king, especially compared to King Saul, and so throughout this whole book, he's been saying, God, uh, David is, is great, he's good, he's good, there's nothing but good that follows David. But at the end of David's career, at the end of David's kingship, towards the end of his life, in fact, God, the chronicler mentions this one failure, this one sin that he had committed. And we're asking the question, why? Why now? Why here? That if you're trying to present a king, a God, not a God, but a king like David, who's so good, why mention his one mistake in this chapter? And the reason is because I'm trying to show us that role, there's a role model of failure here, that David gives us a role model of what to do when we fail. And so in the first time we looked at this, we saw what his disobedience was, but what disobedience really is. Last week, we looked at what judgment is and also what mercy is. And that one of the reasons why the chronicler decides to put this here at this very moment is to show us that this is the place where David experiences judgment and mercy, where we experience judgment and mercy on the cross of Jesus Christ in that place, in that same geography. But today, I want to give you a second reason for why I think the chronicler writes this here, and it's a more personal reason. It's a reason I think that David here is presented, not just for himself, but for all of us, as a role model for when we fail. And I want to do it in two things, repentance and maturity. We look at repentance and maturity. This is the last thing about David's life. And we ask the question, as David asks himself, how do you respond to a God who is always picking on what is good? How do you respond to a holy God whose every wrong needs to be addressed? And yet at the same time, how do you respond when you've received unimaginable mercy? Put it another way. How do you respond when you feel like you failed? When you feel like you've done wrong? Or when you feel like you really sinned? When you know you've done wrong and you know you could have handled things better, when you simply could have done the right thing instead of the wrong thing, how do you respond in that kind of situation? And here's why I think this is the climactic episode of David's life and why Chronicler puts it here. He says here in verse 18, I have sinned. I have sinned greatly in that I have done this thing. Please take away the iniquity of your servant for I have acted foolishly. That's in verse 8. David responds by saying, I've sinned. I've done wrong. Let's be honest with yourselves. When was the last time you said that? When was the last time you were able to say, I have sinned. I've done wrong. And in verse 17, David says to God, Was it not I who gave the command to number the people? It's I who have sinned and done great evil. And I think this is why this part of David's life is written here. It's written to show us why David is still a good king. That even in his failure, he did what people have always struggled to do from the very beginning. Let me explain. In Genesis chapter 3, all the way in the beginning, you remember Genesis 3, that's where Adam and Eve get called out for their sin. God said, don't eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And they disobeyed. And what did they do? 
They ran. They hid themselves. They were exposed. They were put to shame. And when finally God finds them, what do they do? Well, Adam says, Eve made me do it. You're the one who gave me this wife. If it wasn't for her, I wouldn't have done this. Eve says, no, God, it wasn't my fault. The serpent made me do it. He made me question you. He made me think about other things, and I was tempted. They started to blame shift. They blame shift. They did everything they could. But in that story, the one thing that they didn't do, the one thing throughout that whole story in Genesis is this. They never say, I'm sorry. They never just admit what they did. They never own up to it. They never confess it. They never throw themselves on the mercy of God. And I wonder and I wonder again and again if things would have been different if they had. That if they had just trusted God, who they believed not was not only their creator, but also their father, who they were made in the image of this God. A relationship like a father to his children. I wonder if they trusted in that, that they would have done things differently. That they would have just lifted up their hands and surrender and put themselves at the mercy of God's hand. But instead of putting themselves in God's hands, trusting, not in his judgment, but in his mercy, like David does, in fear, in shame, and in nakedness, they take things into their own hands. They sow fig leaves to hide their embarrassment and their shame and their wrongdoing. And that's what they did in the face of failure. I think we relate with this. If you're like me, uh, if you're stubborn, if you are... I guess, opinionated, then you will do anything but admit that you are wrong. I'll do anything but admit that I'm wrong. I will blame shift. I will even lie. I will pretend that it wasn't such a big deal. Oftentimes when the wife and I get into some conflict, deep in my heart, I know she's right. And even if she's half wrong, she's always half right. And rather than just saying, you know what, you're right, I defend myself quickly. And because I'm biblically and more theologically astute than my wife, I can twist, you know, the Bible around it to make it sound like it's all her fault and not, not mine. To justify myself for what I did or how I did or what I said and how I said it. We do anything. And I wonder sometimes for myself, if I had just admitted from the very beginning, I would have avoided all of this conflict. In other words... What David did that Adam failed to do, what we see in this passage, what David did in his sin, in his failure, is he repented. He repented. That's why David is, we're shown this picture of David. He did something that many people, many leaders, many kings would have a hard time doing. He repented. Now what is repentance? That's what we want to see. What is exactly repentance? And in order to understand repentance, uh, I don't just want to tell you what repentance is, but I want to tell you what repentance is not. Because I think there's some confusion here that we oftentimes have. When you look at the New Testament, there's one word you need to know that's oftentimes used for the word repentance. And it's this Greek word called metanoia. And you know what that word means? When you look at the New Testament, it's, it's used for the word repentance. It's translated as return or to go back. But literally, metanoia, repentance in the New Testament means this. You change your mind. You change your mind. Repentance fundamentally means to change your mind about something. It has to do with the way you think about something. When you repent, it's saying this. You've been thinking one way. But now you're thinking in the opposite way. That's repentance. 
that's what repentance begins with. It begins with a change of your mind. Now, how is that repentance? Because think about this. When you really change your mind about something, it's going to change the way you think about something. It's going to change also the way you talk about something. When you change your mind about something, it's going to change the way you feel about something. And it's also going to change the way you act about it. In other words, true repentance is not just thinking. And it's more than just about feeling something. But it's also about doing something. It's also about willing something. To put it in another way, repentance is mental, it's emotional, but it's also volitional. It's by your will. Repentance is a change in the way I think that leads to a change in the way I live. That's what it means. Now you know why John the Baptist, before Jesus comes, what does he preach? Repent, for the kingdom of God is here. And he's saying, change the way you think about God. Turn around and turn to the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Okay? That's what we say in a nutshell what it is, at least in the New Testament. Now let me illustrate to you what repentance is not. Because this is what we think about when we think we need to repent, okay? And that's found here in Matthew chapter 27. Did you know the, new King, the, the King James Version of the Bible says this? Basically they say, Judas repented. Judas, the guy who betrayed Jesus, repented. But when you look at the original language and when you look at better translations, it says this. When Judas, who had betrayed Jesus, saw that he had been condemned, he felt remorse. And he returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priest saying, I have sinned. You see, David says, I've sinned. But in the New Testament, you look at Judas, he says, I've sinned. But it says there, it doesn't say he repented. Literally, it says he felt remorse. He felt bad. But Judas's remorse was not repentance of sin. That's why Matthew doesn't use that Greek word metaneo. He uses a totally different mind, a totally different word, which really means regret or, or sorrow. In other words, Judas didn't experience real repentance. He only experienced emotional regret or remorse. And this is what re repentance is not. And this is what we need to understand. Repentance is not just regret. Repentance is not just remorse. Regret and remorse, it, it's, situated, it's situated in disappointment. You feel sad. You feel regretful. You wish things could have been different, but you don't really do anything to make a difference. In other words, what I want to say is this. Christian repentance is not just some lingo for feeling regret or feeling sorry. You know when you say, I'm sorry? You know, we teach our kids to say, I'm sorry. Do you know what that literally means, I'm sorry? Sorry comes from the word sorrowful. It means you're sad. It means you feel bad. And when you say sorry to someone, all you're saying is, I feel bad. I feel bad for what I did. I feel bad for the situation. I feel bad for the circumstance. Of course you're sorry in that sense. You're sorry for the results. And oftentimes when you're sorry, you feel bad because you got in trouble for it. You feel bad because you got outed. I'm sorry you feel that way. But you're not necessarily sorry for the cause. You're not necessarily sorry for the act of what you've done wrong. You're not necessarily sorry for sin and, and for God. Who are you really sorry for? You're sorry for yourself. I'm sorry. I feel bad. Look at the mess I made. 
Look at the bad results because of what I did. Look at the pain I've caused others. That's not repentance. That's self-pity. Self-pity. Because there's no commitment for a changed heart. There's no commitment to turn around, to think differently, to do the opposite. So what is repentance practically? I'll give you two words, okay? This is how we do it. It's purposed and it's personal. Two, thing, two, two simple things. It's purposed and it's personal. You know, we looked at the Greek word here uh, for repentance, but in the Old Testament, there's a Hebrew word that ha- also helps us understand, and it's this word called shuv, used 600 times in the Old Testament, translated as turn or return or seek or repent or restore, right? But that word in the Old Testament for repentance was a military term that described a soldier marching in one direction and then shoot, turn, does an about face. It was a military turn when a soldier marched and does an about face. And so even in the Hebrew, it's very similar to the Greek word. It means to do a 180. When you repent, you do a 180. You do, you'll do a change in mind that leads to a change in action that leads to a change in life. All right? <clears throat> so how do we do this? Three things. One, you admit it. You begin repentance by confession. I am a sinner. I've done it. I've done wrong. There's no buts. Yeah, you know, I did this wrong, but, you know, because of, no, there's no buts. There's no, well, yeah, you know, I'm not perfect, but, but he said this, and she did this, and that's why I responded. There, there's, there's, there's no excuse. There's no cover-up. There's no attempt to justify or minimize or, or blame shift. Real repentance begins when the blame shifting ends, when the self-pitying ends. You, you admit it, you confess it, and then you own it. You take responsibility for it. You call it what it is. This is my sin. This is what I've done wrong. You confess, you admit, you own it, and lastly, there's a willingness a desire to do an about-face. You work at changing it. You work at changing it. You admit it, you own it, and you desire to change it. That's basically, in a nutshell, what it is. It's purpose. It's intentional. It's repentance. It's not just feeling bad. It's not just feeling sorry. You want to do something different. Charles Spurgeon, famous Baptist preacher, says this about repentance. He says, quote, Repentance is a discovery of the evil of sin, a mourning that we've committed it, and a resolution to forsake it. It is, in fact, a change of mind of a very deep and practical character which makes the man love what once he hated and hate what once he loved, end quote. Repentance is a change in character where you love what you once hated and you hated what you once loved. It's purposeful. It's intentional. But the second thing about repentance is this. It's not only purposeful, it's personal. And when I mean personal, I mean it's relational. It's relational. The thing is, when we sin and when we do something wrong, we've got to remember this. It's always against someone, especially someone we say we love. So when you do something wrong, it's not simply a matter of principles. It's not just a matter of morality or, or a breach of ethics. The person you wronged doesn't say to you, hey, that was a breach of ethics. That was wrong. That was, that was a trespass of the law. No. What they mean is this. When you've wronged someone, what they mean is this. That was wrong, and it hurt me. 
that was, what you did was wrong, and I was offended. What you did was bad, and it broke my heart. Repentance is always relational. It's always relational. That's why David says in Psalm 51, when he thinks about his sins, he, he writes this psalm and he says this, I know my transgressions, my sin is ever before me against you. Only you have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. It's relational. No matter what the sin is, no matter what the wrong is, no matter who you've done it to, every sin is ultimately against this God. And he doesn't just say, hey, that was wrong. You shouldn't have done that. But he says, hey, that was wrong, and I was offended. There's a difference between someone who says, God, I'm sorry, I broke your rules. And the person who says, God, I'm sorry, I broke your heart. Repentance is not just purposeful, it's also personal, it's relational. It's more than just feeling sorry, and it can be difficult. That's why C.S. Lewis says, uh, with regards to repentance, he says this, quote, Now repentance is no fun at all. It is something much harder than merely eating humble pie. It means unlearning all that self-conceit and self-will that we have been training ourselves into for thousands of years. It means killing part of yourself, undergoing a kind of death. You're dying to yourself. And you're living to him. The Christian life is a life of repentance. Okay? That's what repentance is. Now, what does that have to do with maturity? Well, look at David. Look at our passage again. I asked you the question, when was the last time you said like David, I have sinned, right? But let's ask David the question. When was the last time David said, I sinned? I sinned. And there was one other time that's recorded in the Bible other than this. And you don't find it in 1 Chronicles, but you find it in 2 Samuel. You remember the sin with Bathsheba? You remember what he did? See, this is why the chronicler doesn't mention it, because that was pretty bad. That's a lot worse than what you see in chapter 21 here in 1 Chronicles. David, the king, has an affair with his friend's wife. Okay? Can you imagine this? With his friend's wife. And then he has his friend killed so that he could marry her. And because of that, the consequences of that was, was tenfold. His leadership, his, his people, uh, his own family all were affected by this sin. And he says the same thing that he says in 1 Chronicles. He says, God, I have sinned. He repented back then. Remember this? But the difference is this. Follow me. The difference back then was this. Yes, he was sorry. Yes, he felt bad. Yes, he does confess. But he only confessed after he was called out. He only confessed after the prophet Nathan calls him out on what he's done. Back then, he only begins to repent after he's been publicly outed. After he lost face before his people. After his reputation was destroyed. In other words, back then, he only feels sorry after he sees the consequences of his actions and the mess that he's made for himself. And you would almost think, it would lead you to believe, that if God hadn't called him out, that even though David still may have felt real bad deep down in his heart, he may not have really repented. And he wouldn't have addressed the issue. 
But here in our passage, years later, 1 Chronicles 21, though this sin doesn't seem to be the same like the glaring sin of adultery, yet here, the second time he says, I am a sinner, it was before anyone talked to him. It was before the prophet comes to him and calls him out. It was before the punishment was dealt and the consequences were realized. David says, I have sinned before anyone calls him out. The first time, it was his circumstances that called him out. But the second time, it was his own heart. The first time, I think he was thinking primarily about himself. But the second time, he's thinking about others. God, don't strike my people. They're just sheep. Strike me. In other words, the first time, it was his circumstances that made him confess, I am a sinner. I broke your rules. But the second time in our passage, I believe it was his heart that convicted him to confess, I'm a sinner, and I broke your heart. And the reason, the more personal reason that this story is here at the end of David's life, I think, is this. The chronicler wants to show you David has grown. David has grown. He's matured. He's grown spiritually. He's grown in grace. Here in David's failure, you have a role model of what is a spiritually mature person. Look at this. Oftentimes we think that a spiritually mature Christian is someone who who just doesn't sin too often, or at least he doesn't sin the bigger and the more terrible sins. And there may be some truth to that, but what you're shown here in this passage is at the end of David's life, It's just the opposite. Someone who is growing and maturing in faith is not someone who just doesn't make a lot of mistakes, but someone who's quick to admit it. Not someone who is quick to defend himself, but someone who more quickly owns up to what he knows in his heart he has done. A spiritually mature person is not someone who never has to repent, but he's someone who is ready to do it more quickly, more genuinely from his heart. Not because he got called out. Not because he just feels sorry or bad for the consequences. But even before all of that, he's confessing. He's admitting his guilt. It doesn't matter what people think about him. It doesn't matter uh, what others' opinions about him might be. He's not worried about maintaining his reputation or his authority or his public image. He doesn't care about saving faith. He's not making excuses or blaming others. He doesn't try and justify himself. He doesn't let his pride pride get in the way because the only person, the only being's opinion he cares about is the one he has offended and that is his God. I have sinned against you. Only you I have I sinned and done what is evil in my in your eyes. He's grown. Someone who's less mature. Someone who says, I believe in Jesus. They, they, they say this. But deep down, they're still grounded in this image 
of themselves as someone who's got it under control, someone who's not perfect but still a good person, someone who has it all together, and they're so busy maintaining this face to everyone else, they refuse to repent. They hate repenting. They hate saying sorry and never admitting outright, owning up to what they did because to do that would be to destroy the idea of who they think they are. They're hiding. And they would rather avoid repentance altogether. They blame their circumstances. They blame their husband. They blame their wife or the kids or the neighbors. They blame the weather. They're angry, angry at whatever, whatever it is, so long as they don't have to admit the sin, confess a weakness, and face the reality that is maybe not just everyone out there, but it's me. It's me, and I need to change. Repentance is not a bad thing. It's a good thing. You want repentance because it brings you back into a relationship the right way. How? David, at the end of our passage, he says this. Please let your hand, O Lord my God, be against me and against my, not in my father's house, but don't let the plague be on your people. He says, I want to be the substitute for the wrongs of others so that they might go free. And God says, no, not you, David, but thousands of years later, someone in your line named Jesus Christ, he will be your substitute so that you can go free. And it's the cross. Look at the cross. Judgment and mercy. It tells you something. It tells you the horrible truth of what it takes to save you. I've got to kill my son for you. But at the same time, it tells you the amazing grace and mercy of a love that God has like a shepherd for his sheep. When you look at the cross, that brings you to repentance. Listen to Tim Keller in his book, uh, The Meaning of Marriage. He says this, quote, Love without truth is sentimentality. It supports and affirms us, but it keeps us in denial about our flaws. <clears throat> truth without love is harshness. It gives us information, but in such a way that we can't really hear it. God's saving love in Christ, however, is marked both by radical truthfulness about who we are and yet also radical, unconditional commitment to us. The merciful commitment strengthens us to see the truth about ourselves and repent. The conviction and repentance moves us to cling to and rest on God's mercy and grace. You know why you want repentance? Because the more repenting you do, the more grace you get. The more repenting you do, the more mercy you get. And that's why God says, repent, it's a good thing. Why? Because you have a God who knows the worst about you, the worst about you, like nobody does, but still gives you his best. Jesus Christ. When you do wrong, Jesus, he's not looking for a repayment. He's looking for repentance, a restored relationship. You see, the irony of all this is this. David is a leader. He's a king. He should know this. But oftentimes, it's the leaders like David. It's pastors like me. It's elders in the church who ought to be the people who repent 
quickly, without excuse, without bitterness. It's oftentimes those who think they are mature that struggle with repentance. But if your identity is rooted in the fact that you're a sheep who's got a shepherd that said, spare my sheep, take me. If your identity is rooted and grounded in love, you're a sinner, but you're saved by grace. If you know how committed he is to you and what he's done for you, what he's doing here, then even when someone points out something wrong about you, you say, of course. And the thing is, you don't know the worst about me. But I live by grace and I live by mercy. And the more you repent, the more you're grounded in that grace and mercy. You know that, I'm going to end with this, but in Psalm 51, when David writes this, he's thinking about his sin. And I already quoted to you, he says, For I know my transgressions, my sin is ever before me against you, and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. But you know what he says at the end of that chapter? He says this, and we all know this, and this is our prayer as we come to God to repent. Create in me a clean heart. Renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. I hope that's our prayer and that's our desire today. Let's pray.